The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful again for your word. We're thankful for the fact that uh, we don't have to sit here and guess what you want us to do. We don't have to try to figure out uh, just the things and, and juggling and balancing ideas and conflicting opinions. We can actually come back to your word because it is... Uh, it is your authority for us on what you want us to do, what we're supposed to be about. And uh, we're thankful for that. And as we look at these things this morning, we ask that you would just really impress this truth upon us through your word. And we thank you for it then. Amen. So last week we started into, into this kind of a short study within our larger study on the church in terms of what is the church's authority. And as we said last week, the church's authority is the word of God. And I have, I have another sheet that we may come back and do this next week. I don't know, because it was the second part of this. This was all one big study, and I broke it up. But you have churches that are going to tell you that, that part of the church's authority is this is one part of the authority, but the other authority of the church is the church itself or the church tradition. And some of you probably think, well, that's Catholics. Well, they're not the only ones. I can guarantee you they're not the only ones that are like that. The Orthodox Church, Eastern Russian, the Orthodox Church, they're very big on that. They are very big coming out saying are the, the authority is, is the Word of God, church tradition, and then some of them will even add what they call the church fathers. That is the people writing in the second century about this because that's their claim if they're Orthodox. That's their claim to the fact, well, those we still use a Greek Bible, and that's what they wrote in, and so things like that. So there are... Uh, just trying to help you understand there are different spheres of authority that people recognize, or, or uh, not spheres of authority, but authorities on this. In fact, uh, if you come, if you were to look at, and I have this on my other sheet, how many of you ever heard of the Westminster Confession? Everyone heard the term the Westminster Confession? It is a confession that is connected with Protestant Christianity uh, in England, comes out of there. And it, and it is used by uh, some Anglicans, mostly Reformed and uh, re- uh, Reformed Presbyterians. Not all, most Presbyterians uh, today probably in America are not Reformed Presbyterians, but, uh, but traditionally they were very much so. And they believe that, and they go through that, and I listen to those people, and sometimes when they're talking on subjects and I listen to these people, and they, you know what they go to as their authority? They go to the Westminster Confession, and, they, and instead of going to Scripture and exegeting this, they go and they talk to you, well, the Westminster Confession says, and they treat it like an authority. And then if you're Baptist, you have the Philadelphia Baptist Confession, which is essentially the Westminster Confession with the Presbyterian junk removed from it and Baptist things put in place in certain places. But otherwise, it's, you read sections of it, it's word for word with the <laughs> Westminster Confession. And I know Baptists that will go and they will say, well, the Philadelphia Baptist Confession says. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't settle the problem. I want to know in the Word of God, where does it tell us this? That's what I want to know. I don't want your opinion. And in fact, I was going to do this last week and I forgot. We can make all kinds of other things authorities. I just got up last week and I had a copy of the book on the sun. And I said, we had just got a new printing. If somebody wanted those, they were available or something like that. But I was going to then use that and hold that up. You know, I said, this isn't the authority. This is the word. The word of God's the authority. Not a book I wrote or a book anybody else wrote. It's the book God wrote. That's the authority. And, and most of you are going, probably in your head, you should be doing some, well, Tim would say, duh, I, you know, that's the way I would put it. You might use more genteel language than Tim does. But yeah, the word of God is our authority. But it's amazing when you deal with people how often they quote other sources as our authority and all kinds of different things. In fact, one of the things um, is, you know, if we decide we're, as a church we're going to do this, 
And this, this happened. I had a friend that was involved in a church that did this. If we all get together and let's say 90% of us all go, yay, and let's say 10% go, nay, and the 10% that are saying nay are saying, the word of God says this. And the rest of them going, yeah, but we all think that we should do this. It doesn't make any difference what 90% of us say. We still have to come back to this. God's truth is not decided democratically. Yes, and that... Yeah. Yeah. And they got outvoted and the nation suffered for it, didn't they? Because God knew what he was going to do. Everybody heard that, right? Caleb and Joshua versus the other 10 spies. So last week, what we did was we went and looked at God providing this revelation. We looked at how Paul said that this revelation was coming about and bringing it and bringing it about for us. And part of the reason this came out was because I, I was, if you remember from last week, does anybody remember what's, what made me go down this path? We're doing this study on church dynamics, and I was just kind of curious, what do evangelical leaders think are the big needs of the church? And so I just plugged this in on the internet. And, and I'm not, I'm, you know, any a guy like me could put something on the internet, but I was looking for people that are kind of have some renown just to see on the larger scale, what do they think is the, are the big problems? Okay, because the problems I might put up, people go, that, you think that's a problem? So anyway, put that up there, and a, most, a number of these evangelical scholars said that the biggest problem in the church today is lack of biblical authority. That we put in there our opinions, trump the word of God, what we like, what is popular, in fact, there was a, a very, very, very famous church. If I named it, I bet almost all of you know about the name of this, this particular church, but it was a church back in the Midwest. And when they founded that church, and I remember I was in seminary at this time uh, when this was getting put under, and they went around their community and they asked the people in their community, what do you like about church? What don't you like about church? And then you know what they did? They decided to structure a church that did the things that the people in their community, not the Christians, just their whole, the community they were surveying, the things they liked, they decided to do those things, and the things that they didn't like, they decided to avoid those. So they decided to make church something that the unsaved world out there said, this is what we don't like, this is what we like, so we're going to use them as the guideline. Instead of going to the Word of God and saying, how does the Word of God kind of portray the way church is done, they went and asked the world which is crazy when you stop and think about that. So, we come down here, we were talking here last week the importance of the Word of God because it is a critic. It's a critic. We get excited. Think about that. Let's say our church decided, hey, we're going to do this and it's going to be successful because it worked for this church over here, that church over there. So we're going to do what they do. And if you don't think that happens, I, can, I don't get a lot of them anymore, but probably the first 15 years I was here, Probably at least once a month, I got a flyer from some big church somewhere here in the Pacific Northwest and sometimes on the other side of the country saying, we're going to come and we're going to do this one day seminar and you can come and we're going to teach you how to do church in a successful manner like we've done that have all these people here and you can come. One day, if you sign up right now, you can get in for 150 bucks for the day. So they're charging to teach you how to do church like this. And I just... Number one, the charging thing always drives me nuts. But number two, it's like, is that the way you do it? Is that the way you do it? Do you have a, you put on seminars to teach people how to do church like us? So I want to look at some passages where we're going to see that how Paul and Peter, how they handled the word of God and some different things that go along with it. So we're going to start off first that they stayed with God's revelation. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Sorry, that was a really long introduction. I was kind of trying to review where we were last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now, if you remember, because we have gone over this before, before Paul arrives in Corinth, what city had Paul been in? Does anybody remember? <coughs> He'd been in Athens, and he was on Mars Hill. And most Christians 
think this is great because they, they love Paul giving this philosophical argument. But Paul tells you when he got to Corinth, what happened back there shook him up. Paul doesn't look at it as a thing that was good. Paul looks at it as a thing that, that kind of freaked him out. He says, we came there. Well, he says, I, I determined not to do any of that. In other words, whatever I did on Mars Hill, Paul says, I'm not doing that. That's what he tells you there in verse 1. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So whatever popular Christianity tells you about Mars Hill, Paul's opinion was it didn't go well. He got laughed off of Mars Hill. Were there some people that heard something and believed? Yes. But the majority of those people mocked Paul. He says, verse 4, And my message and my preaching were not with, very important, were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Now this is very important. Notice this. Verse 5, That your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. In other words, Paul says, I wanted you people to hear the gospel, hear who Christ was, hear what Christ did, and I wanted your faith to be in that. I didn't want it to be in the fact that Paul got up and gave you this very persuasive argument for God, which is kind of what he was trying to do on Mars Hill, right? He's trying to persuade them that that's who that is. And you remember when he comes to Mars Hill, they said he is a proclaimer of strange, this is what they were saying about Paul, do you remember? Strange gods, plural. Because, and then they say that, because he proclaims to us Jesus and the resurrection. See, they thought resurrection was a god. Do you know why they thought that? Because the Greeks out of hand rejected physical resurrection. They thought resurrection was the stupidest thing in the world. Our goal is to get out of this body and just become spirit essence out there in this, in this whatever afterlife is coming. They didn't want to come back in a body. They looked at the body as a life of torment and pain and suffering and struggle. And they wanted to escape that. That was Greek culture in their day. Okay? Kind of unlike our culture, our culture today is, no, let's get every last minute in this body. Let's live life to the fullest. Let's have fun. Gusto! <coughs> See, we're a little different than the way they looked at life. Kind of on almost opposite ends of the spectrum. But to some degree... Even Greek culture had that. They had the Epicureans and they had the Stoics over here and the Epicureans over here. The Epicurean, and you had both of those on Mars Hill, it says. The Epicureans were like, yeah, life in this body is really bad, so we might as well enjoy as much of this body as we can because we don't care about the body. So whatever we do, however hard we are, whatever we destroy our body, makes no difference. All we really care about the spirit. So let's eat, drink, and have fun because tomorrow this body will be gone and we'll go on to something better. That's the way they looked at it. The Stoics, on the other hand, know we ought to not to have too much fun. We ought not to eat too much. We ought to, we not, because we don't want to, because we don't want to enjoy food too much and all these kinds of things. And they had a very different kind of perspective on life. But those were in Greek culture, but both of them had the same perspective. We're going to be out of this body and we won't ever have to be bodies again. If Paul could convince those people with laying out an argument, not biblical revelation, but an argument, which is what Paul's trying to do, then their faith would have been, as Paul says, it would have been in the wisdom of men. But Paul says, I did not want it to be in the wisdom of men. He says there in verse 5, that your faith should not be in that, but it should be on the power of God. What's the, why, why does he bring the word power of God in there? What's the power of God referring to? What was the, what was the, what was the crux issue on Mars Hill? The... It's the thing they had problems with. It was the resurrection. And what was the power of God? It was demonstrated when he raised Jesus Christ bodily from the grave, not in an old rickety broken down body like this, but in a glorified powerful body. And Paul says, I wanted your wisdom to be in that. So he says, we preached Christ and him crucified when we came to you. We didn't get all these other kinds of fancy things. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm no different than you. I'm not saying I shouldn't pull you guys in with me. But I know sometimes when you're talking with different people, for some reason, instead of just sticking with the gospel, I sometimes I want to kind of, there's a part of me that's tempted to chase these other things over here and try to make a, a case for the gospel. 
The case for the gospel is this is what the word of God says. That's the case for the gospel. It's not that I can go back and find people historically in the first and second centuries that said Jesus was raised. I want to find what the word of God says about this because it's a matter of faith. And Paul says, I wanted your faith to stand in there. So when Paul says, he says, I didn't resort to philosophy. I didn't resort to all these other things, which if you read chapter one, you could find that there were Corinthian believers that were resorting to those. And Paul essentially tells them, God doesn't need your help. The gospel is sufficient. You don't need all this other fancy stuff. And for some reason, as Christians, we don't believe God's word. See, we don't take God's word as the authority. So the, ne the next one I want you to look at in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And nothing we're looking at here is groundbreaking. And we've, all we've looked at these things before. But it's good for us to be reminded of this. I want to go back up to verse 6. This has to do now with Christian living. This isn't this is an initial salvation. The first Corinthians 2 was about sharing the gospel with the unsaved. But this is even true when you're dealing with believers, Paul says. Verse 6. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Did you make the whole idea of believing in Jesus Christ something complicated? No. It was, this is who he is, this is what he did. You believe that. Boom. I still love the account. I love that account of Peter sharing the gospel with household of Cornelius because he says, and all those who believe in him receive forgiveness of sins, and boom, just like that, they all get the Holy Spirit. And the Jews are all like, whoa, why? Because they needed to have, they needed to hear what Christ did, but they needed a promise. And they hear it, and there's nothing else fancy in his argument. In fact, I was like when Peter's talking in chapter 11 to the Jews from Jerusalem that are investigating this, that they all say, or Peter says to them, I was just starting. <laughs> Peter had a lot more he was planning on sharing with them. But all he had to do was share that simple fact of the gospel and that there's a promise of forgiveness. And boom, all these people just instantly get saved. He wasn't there pleading with them. I grew up in churches like that where you're like, you'd plead, you'd work with them. Oh, they're so close to salvation. I don't want to stop now. One more hour and I can get this person saved. And I've heard people say that. We worked with them. I took them aside and I worked with them and I worked with them and he was having problems, but I kept working with him. I got him, I got him, and I've heard them say that. I got him saved. Baloney. I honestly think what happened is they got that person to say a prayer or go, yes, I believe. But I don't think they really did. Now, sometimes people are, but if you have to work at a person like that to get them to believe, I don't think they've really believed. Because you know what happens when people believe? It's what you saw there in Acts 10. It's what happens with the people that follow Paul out of the synagogue in Antioch. They hear the message, which is the word of God, and they believe, and they don't need you to wrestle and wrestle and wrestle with them to get them to believe. So he's saying, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. It's, in other words, it's a simple fact. Who is Christ for you right now? Just walk in that. Having been firmly rooted and built up in him and established in your faith. So he's saying, you guys, the Colossians, he's saying, it's not like you guys don't have this. He says, you're rooted, you're built up, you're established, you're set on a foundation, just as you were instructed. So he saw, somebody taught them these things and overflowing with thanksgiving. Verse 8, but even though those people, so I can say this to you, even though I would say most of you, to my knowledge, are pretty established in God's word, very solid. And, that, and it's not because I've been here for 30 years. It's just that being here 30 years, I know that many of you are. I've got to witness it. I've got to see what you know. Many of you have learned these things before I ever knew you. Some of you learned them since you've been with us. But the thing is, I know most of you are established, but you know what Paul does with the Colossians? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. In other words, Paul realizes even believers that are rooted and established, they can be taken away. And that word led captive is a word in the Greek that meant to take you away like your booty. My wife and daughter, in some of our evening time this last week, we were watching the Pirates of the Caribbean movies from Disney, if you've ever seen those movies. And what, when you think of pirates, you think of what? People that did raiding parties on merchant ships and took their stuff. And the stuff that they took, what did they call it? Booty. 
So it's the idea that something's being taken from you. And Paul here is saying, here with established believers, he says, I want to make sure that nobody steals you like your booty, like they're winning you in this way. And they do throw through philosophy. They're not going to come with you with the word of God just straight and plain. They're going to come to the word of God and you're going to say, well, the word of God says this. And they're going, yeah, but it doesn't really mean that. I think you're missing the nuance of what Paul's getting at. I'm reading a book right now, a biography on the Apostle Paul written by a man. And I've heard people quoting from this biography now for 20, over 20 years. And so I'm reading it. And as I'm reading this, this guy makes all kinds of conjectures. How do we get into the mind of Paul? How do we do this? This. Well, I think if you and I'm just going, that is not the way I've ever read my Bible. And maybe I have been reading it wrong, but most of it is not straightforward. He goes, well, the historian has to approach it like this. And he's like, I'm an historian. And anyway, so don't let them lead you captive through philosophy. Where they're Philosophy is trying to answer questions oftentimes that the Word of God doesn't have a straightforward answer. It's where we sit and ruminate on this stuff. And that's a dangerous thing, trying to fill in the gaps that God doesn't tell us about. If he leaves a gap, either we haven't seen the information in the Word yet that fills in the gap, or God's like, you don't need to know that right now. And we always want to, you know, people always want to know all these questions about, well, why does God elect? people. Why does God elect that person and not that person? I can give you a simple answer. Tells you out of Ephesians. It was pleasing to God. Why was it pleasing to God? That I can't answer. <laughs> God doesn't tell me why it's pleasing to him. I suppose it'd be kind of like some of you asking, saying, why don't you, you like, you can eat a chocolate thing like this, but you don't like chocolate ice cream. Why not? I don't like it. <laughs> you know, you know, it's just that there's, you all know that there's things you like and some people go, well, why? Because I just don't. And I don't know why God does that. So, he says through philosophy. And then through empty deceit. And empty deceit is, is things that are, it's a word for empty or vain, meaning the content. You've emptied the content, but that deceit there is they're giving you a false impression. They're, they're trying to make it look like this is what it is, but in reality, it's this over here. And they don't want you to see this. So they're giving you a false impression about what they're saying, which conceals then the real thing. And he says what it does is it empties the content of this truth. So it goes on here. He says empty deceit. And he says these are according to the, notice the tradition of men. In other words, when you look at all these other religions and the things that they hold to, you could look at this and say, <clears throat> This is, this is what man, mankind think. And I think I've shared this story with you a number of times, but I don't know, 20-some years ago, Emily probably remembers this as well as Peggy, but we'd, we'd turn on public TV on Sunday afternoons because we like to watch this show called Two Fat Ladies Cook. You remember that show? We used to just love watching those two ladies cook on there because we didn't have cable TV with, with cooking shows all day long, so we'd watch these ladies. And every once in a while you turn it on, it's like, what's this? And there'd be a guy on a stage in this really cool looking room and there's like maybe 40 people sitting in chairs neatly spaced and he's got a whiteboard and he's going through why all religions in the world are in reality all the same. There is no real difference between these religions. They're all the same. This is what this guy was doing. And then he, and I was like, okay, we can't turn this because I want to hear what he's going to say here. He, and then he went through and he said, see, look at Christianity. And he outlines all these things. See, Christianity is all these things. And I'm looking, and Peg and I are sitting there. I don't remember if the girls remember this, but we're looking. I'm going, well, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's not, I mean, the things he's putting up there, they're what people think Christianity is. But if you know Christianity according to the word of God, it wasn't Christianity. Because Christianity and salvation is not based on works. Are there works that God has for you to do? Yes. Do those works change your eternal destiny? <laughs> no, they don't. But everybody that has a false gospel is always going to, in some way, bring works into the mix, including a lot of people that bear the name Christian. There are a lot of Reformed Christians, that people that are going to say, yeah, you're not saved by works up front. But if you're really saved, you're going to produce those works. And if I don't see those works in you, then you're not saved. Because I have to see those works. That's what it comes down to. And 
we usually, we slap the label on that Lordship Salvation. They look at it differently than that, although they, they kind of do, they do take that title to some degree. But all of this, what he's saying, it is a tradition of men. The reason I used that example of that man doing that show on that afternoon was because a lot of what that man said was true. That is, all these religions are the same. Because human mentality goes, it can't be that easy. There's got to be more to it. I was, uh, had a short visit with Ben last night on the phone and talking a little bit about Catholicism. So I went and I looked last night about what does Catholics believe? And I was looking for what Catholic priests in the church said. And they say that salvation is three things, three necessary things. Repentance. And they say repentance for them. They, we, what do we say repentance is? Change of mind. They say repentance is telling God you are sorry for your sins and promising to turn your back on those sins and not do those anymore. That's repentance. They're very plain on that. Second of all, faith. So they get, so they'll say, yeah, we believe that you're saved by faith. And thirdly, baptism. So you have to, you have to, and, and then they will always say, you're not saved them by works, but if you really have repented, then you're going to do good works. And if you don't do good works, then it's evidence that you have lost your faith or lost your salvation, see. And I, that was just, I was looking at that last night for a little while, but that's, there's tons of people within Christianity that hold those views, that go to churches that maybe have the name Baptist out front, see. And what I'm just trying to tell you is, these, when it says the tradition of men, this is the way people think. This is human. It shouldn't surprise us that we're surrounded by many people that think that salvation comes by, okay, we don't want to say by works, but we're somehow or another going to weasel works into this mix. And Paul says, no, those are the traditions of men. They're according to the, we have elementary principles of the world. In other words, this is the way the world works, right? Let's be honest. In the world, from the time you're a little kid, you are trained in the world, you don't get anything for nothing. What's the word? You don't get something for nothing. Isn't that kind of what you... If your mom and dad did a good way of teaching you, raising you, that's kind of what they taught you in the world. You don't get something for nothing. You got to work for it. So I'm going to teach you how to work so that when you become an adult, you actually know how to work. Or you don't burn the house down. Or don't, you don't burn the house down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those are the basic elementary principles of the world. Those are the basic, yeah, like I was saying, I mean, I got in trouble. One of the elementary principles my parents had to drill into me is quit lighting matches and starting fires, see? Because they literally, if they were said, don't burn the house down, they meant it because we, I had that problem as a kid. But those are basic elementary principles that you have to teach consequences in the world. They do that. In fact, if you want elementary principles, you go down here in chapter 2 in Colossians down to verse 21, he talks about the elementary principles in verse 20, and he says, you died with Christ to those basic principles. That's not what, that's not what uh, uh, is the structure for your Christian life. And he says in verse 21, these are the basic principles. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Who do you say that to? To kids, usually. I mean, if Leslie and, and Linda and Susan have to be telling Gordon and Gary and, and Stan... Don't touch that. Don't put that in your mouth. Don't play with that. Oh, you know, it's like, shouldn't they have learned that when they were like one and two and three, right? See, what? <laughs> or my wife's thinking she has to tell me that once so I guess. But <laughs> that's the look I'm getting from her anyway. But that, but that's the essence of the thing. It's always telling, it's, uh, the world system is always trying to tell you this is off limits. This is off limits. This is off limits. So we go back up there to verse 8, and he says the elementary principles of the world, rather than, he contrasts then, in contrast to, or not according to Christ. In other words, he says this philosophy, this whole procedure, these elementary principles of the world, the traditions of men are never according to Christ. In fact, turn back with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is one of the reasons that we have to come to the Word of God as our authority. Because Paul tells us that we're just going to go to verse 9. But as it is written, and think about this, this comes out of the Old Testament. So even things that God was doing with Israel in the Old Testament still follows this basic principle. 
the things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered in the heart of man. In other words, nobody ever saw this stuff. Nobody ever heard this and nobody ever imagined it. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, the things that you and I know that God's plan for us, nobody's ever dreamed it up. Therefore, in, co in comparison to what Paul just said over there in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he said those are the traditions of men. The traditions of men are never in line with what God has planned for us because they saw those. They heard those. They dreamed them up. And he says, not the things God's planned for us. Do you understand again? Does that help you understand more why this is our authority and not some council that we're going to call together and decide on all these matters? Josh is, I keep, I'm, I'm not giving Josh a hard time when I keep saying that he's been teaching us, working us through different things about our position in Christ for three years. And I don't know that it's three years. I just, I'm making round numbers, but... There's nothing wrong with that. But when he's going through that, those things about how you live the Christian life and how you relate to your position in Christ, that's not something that comes out of any kind of human tradition. I talked about it to, to, to some people once and there was an unsaved person standing there listening and they're like, oh yeah, that's like, and they throw this and these Christians are going, oh, it is like that. And I'm like, it's nothing like that. That, what they're talking about is meditation. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Because they, they were saying, it's just like people meditate. You know why people meditate? You know the purpose of meditation? The purpose of meditation is actually to get you to stop thinking. You don't, think, you don't realize that, but that's what that word meditate means. That's the whole goal of meditation in religions. In fact, in our Old Testament, we have the word translated meditate, but it's a Hebrew word, haggah, in the Hebrew that means to repeat over and over what God has said to you. In other words, you're saying, God has told me this, and God has told me this, and God has told me this. It's not repeating a mantra. It is mentally reviewing what God had told the people. I shouldn't be doing this anymore. What God has told you in the word of God. What God had revealed to Israel in their law. That's why he says you need to meditate this or repeat this over and over. You need to bind it on your foreheads and put it on your wrist because the law needs to be something that's like the back of your hand in terms of the way they functioned. It wasn't meditation. And when they translate it like that, and I, because I, I've had people that say, oh, when you talk about thinking about your position in Christ, that's meditation. It's not meditation. You need to talk to people that, that really practice meditation and you ask them what it is. I have, I don't know, for the last many years, I've really been bad about it the last few months, but I do yoga. And in that time, I bet I've probably done yoga with five different yoga instructors online. And some of them are just like, we're doing this, now we're doing this stretch, now we're doing this stretch, and we're doing this. But some of them are like, now we're going to center all of our energy, and we're going to get here like this. And just let everything go. Let all the cares of the day, just let them go. Think on nothing. Just let your mind become blank. Well, they don't use that exact expression, but that's what they're doing. They just, they just want you to just kind of be, hmm. And God doesn't say that. God says to frame your mind with who you are in Christ. God says that you should be reflecting on the character and the work of God. Those are the things that he tells you to do, not to let your mind become nothing. And I say that because this person said, oh, your position in Christ, that's just like meditation. It's just like, it's just like Eastern religion. I'm like It's nothing like it at all. Nothing like it at all. Because that is part of human tradition. I can't escape suffering. That's the main, that's a big part of the Eastern religion. If you don't know that, it's we can't escape suffering in this life. So if I just let my mind become a blank slate of nothingness, then I'm not thinking about suffering. I'm not thinking about anything good because even if you think about a good thing, oh, It'll slip over into suffering. This is the way they look at this. So Paul is saying here, when he writes the Corinthians, he says, I didn't resort to that. Stuck with the word of God. He tells the Colossians, even as believers, you've got to be careful because you can be drawn in. People can take you astray. And they can. I want you to go to 1 Peter. 2 Peter, pardon me. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
2 Peter chapter 1, and I don't know if you remember this, we went through this back maybe a month or so ago, but in the verses preceding this, Peter says something kind of similar to what Paul says. You guys are grounded and established in this present truth. You know this stuff. But Peter then says, but you know what? I'm going to keep stirring up your minds so that when I'm gone, you're going to remember this stuff. I'm not going to be around to keep telling you, hey, what? That's in, if that's in the verses up above here, 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, where he says in verse, uh, like verse 12, Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of those things, even though you already know them and are established in this, in this literally the present truth. He's talking about New Testament truth. That's why he calls it present truth. Not Old Testament truth, present truth, he says. And consider it right. I consider it right as long as I'm here in this tent to stir you up by way of a reminder, knowing that the laying aside of this tent or this dwelling is imminent. In other words, he knows I'm going to die soon, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I know I'm going to die soon. I'm not going to be here. And I will also be diligent that at, that at any time after my departure, when I've died, you might be able to remember these things, call them to mind. So Paul says, or Peter, excuse me, says, I'm going to keep reminding you because I'm not going to be here forever. Verse 16. For, this is why he has to do this. For, we did not follow, <coughs> excuse me, cleverly devised tales or myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so he just says, we just told you what happened. But he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales or myths. He says, we weren't putting together these really clever, pithy ideas to try to persuade you on this. And I think that this is an important thing for us to remember because it's a, it is a, I can ask Josh, Ben, uh, Jim, myself, is it sometimes when you're studying, do you ever get an idea that pops into your head and you're like, oh, that would be a really good way. Man, this, and then you start thinking about, wait a second, that doesn't quite line up with this, but man, it would really help. You guys ever have that problem? Maybe you don't. I got that problem where I'm thinking about something and you get an idea. And then you start comparing it to scripture and you go, that doesn't really communicate scripture. But boy, I tell you, boy, people would remember that really well. But do you want people to remember something really well at the expense of having to deviate from what the word of God says? So he says, we didn't use cleverly devised things. We didn't have to come up with gimmicks. Again, it comes back to that Peter probably has such a good memory of what happened when he was in the household of Cornelius and how he just communicated the gospel. He didn't get into a clever, fancy message with all kinds of gimmicks. He just gave this to them and they, boom, these people believe. Just like that. Rather than having to, there was a, I don't know, the word, I don't know if, some of you might be old enough, pardon me to use that language, but it used to be, they used to call it personal work. And there were books written back in the day on personal work. And what they were talking about was how you personally work with an individual to get them to come to saving faith in Christ. And they'd have all these things about how to present the gospel and how to work with them. And, and as though you, by learning all these techniques, could persuade a person to become a Christian. Or... I would even take it so far as by using these techniques to persuade Christians to live the Christian life, at least as you think it should be lived. And Peter and Paul, both of these guys, are standing here saying, we didn't use this stuff. Come on, guys. This is our authority. We gave you the word of God. Granted, oral for the most part at that time, because they didn't have it. But by the time Peter's writing 2 Peter, just flip over here to chapter 3 for a minute. When we come to 2 Peter... A lot of Paul's writings are, are complete. In fact, there's a possibility, uh, according to history, that Peter dies after Paul, so all of Paul's writings would be done if that's the case. But Peter makes this statement here in 2 Peter chapter 3, and he says, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. That, by the way, patience of our Lord, that's the way Paul is or Peter is describing God's grace. One aspect of God's grace towards you and I is that when we get out of line, when we mess up, when we sin, 
God doesn't just immediately strike us with a thunderbolt and we're ash. He gives us time to get it together, get back on our feet and, and go on. So he says, you look at his patience from the Lord as salvation. He's giving you more time to grow, not to get saved again, but to grow. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. In other words, he, he, Paul's writing the same people that Peter wrote. As in all his letters. In other words, all of Paul's letters are going to communicate something to us about what it means to live by grace. They don't all articulate it in the same detail, but they all say something. He says, uh, and then Peter goes on, as in all his letters, speaking in them these things in which are some things that are hard to understand. In other words, Peter goes, I'm not looking at this and saying, I just read it. It's just all, some of it, it and this is why it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand because it's contrary to human tradition. <laughs> and it's hard for us to undo the way we think as humans and learn to think of it from what God's telling us. And he goes, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. But he says they do that with, and this is really nice, as they do with the rest of the scriptures. In other words, Paul just, Peter just told us, Paul's letters, he considered them scripture. Because they did that also with the rest of the scriptures. Not just Paul's scriptures, but the rest of them. They distort them. They take those scriptures and they can't just take them for what they say. They've got to turn them into something else. Because you've got to make it something that people can do. I just, this, I've been working through some issues about the law and it still is amazing to find Christians, I mean, Christian Bible teachers, people I think really are believers that are like, you can do this. The law is a good guide for our life. This is, the way, this is God's will for us. And I'm always like, and so when you come to passages where he says nobody they, that Israel couldn't do it, that they failed under the law and all those things, they, they keep thinking about that. And I remember, I don't know, 30 some years ago, close to, right around the time we were here, um, there was a big, big movement across America called Promise Keepers. And I still remember a guy, I never met him, but, but I received an article from the mail and he goes, I don't know why we're doing this. He says, Israel did this at Sinai. He says, and said, everything the Lord said we'll do. And he says, that's exactly, he went through this. He said, this is exactly what they're trying to get men to do to set these set of promises. And it all sounds good, but the New Testament never asks men to make those promises. Every time you stand there and say, God, I promise I'll do it right this time. This time I'm serious about it. This time I'm going to... Every time we do that, we are overestimating what we can do. And Peter says, you know what? You're going to mess up. You're going to fall. You're going to, you're going to land on your nose. It's, that's what's going to happen. You are going to make promises and you're not going to keep them. And I've been there. I have been a guy that makes promises to God. God, I'm serious. This time I'm serious about it. This time I mean it. And give me... A week or so and my hook spa uh, runs out and I end up falling on my nose. And then I'm right back there and God says, remember, we're doing this by grace, bud. I don't think he calls me bud. But uh, Tim, we do this by grace. We're not doing this by you making promises that you're going to be a better person. Can't you learn from Israel? Peter, and Peter tells us that. The guy that we're here, the guy that writes this is the guy that said, stood up in front of that group of people in Acts 15 and says, you know what? Our fathers couldn't keep this law and we can't either. So let's not throw this on the, the neck of these new Gentile disciples. So I just, I come to these verses and Peter and Paul are both telling us the same thing. We stuck to this. We didn't get involved in all of this stuff. If you've got somebody out there that's going to give you a class or a seminar or whatever it is, and they're going to tell you how to better communicate the word of God or, or evangelize, I can guarantee you they're going to show you methodology. And methodology is not how you give, communicate the gospel. You don't need methodology, according to the word of God. You just need to know when God puts a person in your path that you're supposed to be sharing the gospel with, that you share that. You just need to know what the gospel is. Make it clear, make it plain, and leave it there. God doesn't need you to collar them and get them over there in the corner and back them into a corner and get them to the point that you can make them believe. And the same thing's true when it comes to teaching Christians. Now, I want to look at, I want to, 
just kind of looking at the clock here. Acts chapter three. I really want to. I really want to finish this. This is the next part of my outline. Is some people then sometimes we allow culture to influence what we think about God's salvation and conduct. I was going to do a little exercise with you. I was talking to my wife about this the other night um, to just ask if you could stop and think. What are some ways that you think, and maybe this is for you personally, or maybe this is just what you observe within the church. So I'm not talking about just Christendom in general. I'm talking about people that identify themselves as real believers in Christ. Can you think of some ways that we allow culture to step in and mingle, that we adopt that? How do we let, how do we let culture affect the way we do what God set before us here? Can you think of some ways that we might that we might do that? Maybe you're throwing yourself under the bus. I'm not asking you to have to name names or anything. I'm just asking for thoughts. I think it happens through music sometimes. I was just saying, yep, I was saying that too. We allow music to not follow gospel and we bring that in and it sometimes sways our thinking. Yeah. Yeah, we have. You all know this. I mean, we sing out of this hymn book. I like Jim picked some songs today. But you've ever sung, sung songs out of the hymn book and you're going along singing the song? And sometimes I'm like, I used to pick songs out uh, when I used to do leading singing all the time in the past. And I'd come, oh, I love this song. I haven't sung this song since I was like a kid. Oh, we're going to sing this song Sunday. And we sing it. And I didn't go and review the song. And we get in, the first verse is pretty good. Get the second verse and I'm like, what? I don't remember that was in there. What in the world? It's like, this is, so yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we kind of forgive those musical artists. We give them musical poetic license. I think psychology and philosophy affect a lot too. Because it, it, it speaks to our heart. And as Christians, we want to have a heart. And so when people throw at us those psychological and philosophical things that are loving on people, it's hard to remember what the Bible say we're supposed to do. Yeah, there you go. I'll take one more because we could be here the rest of the morning. A lot of people with influence that, you know, are very popular in society say uh, this is the way Christendom works and it's nothing close to... I just listened to Jim Carrey this morning you know, talk about yeah. Jesus and how he's saved and, yeah. and he gave this whole speech about how through pain and suffering, we can we know what's going on with the cross because we know how Christ suffered. So he's making us like Christ through our suffering, and that's so anti-biblical. It's not even funny. And I watched it, and I was just like, I really hope that, that there aren't new believers listening to this because it's sick. Yeah. You know? I mean, sorry. I didn't know. But it's just it's one of those things that you get the right person, you know, that can be easily influenced listening to that kind of stuff, and it's devastating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that that's a that's a good that's not what I thought about, but that's that's a real common thing. And I if you if you're if you're a if you're a stupid person like me and you spend too much time on YouTube, it's real easy if you do that, especially if you've clicked on one or two, then it's going, oh, you like these, and now you see a whole bunch of them. And they've got all these pop stars and sports figures and politicians, and they're up there saying these things about God, and you're like, okay, I want to hear what this guy says. And you listen to it going, he doesn't understand God. Well, let's listen to this guy. Oh, yeah. oh man! <laughs> and he doesn't get it. And you do see that. But then people then repeat that stuff and they adopt it. So yeah, the whole point is, is our culture can really affect this. And I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 3 if you haven't done so. I don't remember if I told you to turn there. But I, I, this, is, this is one example here of, uh, from this. I've got, it's a long section to read, so just bear with me. But I think that we need to read through this. We're going to put in uh, Acts chapter 3 and verse 11. We have Peter and John... And this man is healed, this man that's been lame. And it says in verse 11, And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called porch of Solomon, full of amazement. And when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze up, gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned 
the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murder to be given to you, and you put to death the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, to which, let me turn the page, which we are all our witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent or change your minds, therefore, and turn so that your sins might be wiped away. See, there's the forgiveness of sins. If you change your mind about what you think about this Christ, your sins would be wiped or cleaned away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, uh, the Christ, anointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you will give heed in everything. And he says to you, And it will be that every soul that does not listen to the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to his, to his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But you first, or for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from his wicked ways. Verse 1 of chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already <coughs> evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and a number of the men came to be about 5,000. So they had about 3,000. Now the number of believers in Jerusalem are up to around 5,000. But the point here is they're preaching this message, but the officials, the rulers... They take them captive. They put them in prison in this context. Go down to verse 21 here in chapter 4. It'd be wonderful if we just keep reading through this whole chapter, but look at verse 21. And when they had, and when they had well, let's, let's go back to verse 20. For we can, well, it's verse 19, pardon me. But Peter and John, but Peter and John answered to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people, because they were glorifying God for what had happened. That is for this man being healed. Flip over to chapter five. Flip over to chapter five. We're going to go down to verse 17. They've been arrested again, thrown in jail again. It says, But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles, put them in jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, taking them out. He said, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Jump down to verse 40 in this chapter. 5 verse 40. And again... Uh, this is after they had some consultation with Gamaliel, but verse 40, and they took his advice, Gamaliel's advice, and after calling the apostles in, so they're not going to do away with the apostles, but they're going to bring him in. But they brought them in, calling the apostles, they flogged them. You all know what it means to flog? That's a real severe beating, right? They give them a severe beating and then ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and they released them. And they went away, and guess what they do? It tells us they went from the presence of the council rejoicing that it be considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus is the Christ. Now, I've got a whole other set of these verses that I would like to go through with you. We're not going to do it today. But it's the same thing with Paul. But the point was, is if Peter and John would have looked at what the culture is doing at this time, they would have said, this is not very popular, and we keep getting beat up and thrown in jail. And they're jailed twice, and they're beat up. This stuff's going on. Then you get to Paul, and this happens to Paul when he gets saved, and he preaches in Damascus. They seek his life. They have to run him out by night. He goes to Jerusalem. He preaches the gospel in Jerusalem. They try to kill him. The, the disciples have to take him by night and send him away to Tarsus. 
And then eventually he joins them. And every time Paul goes on one of these missionary journeys, he runs into problem. He gets run out of town. They even take him one time and they stone him. Then when he goes on his second missionary journey, he gets to Philippi and what happens? He gets arrested and beaten, severely beaten, by the way, he and Silas both, and put in jail. Then he goes to Thessalonica and the people from Philippi run down and they cause problems. And just, I always make you think about this. How would you like it if because of me, they arrested some of you men in the church and made you put up a financial bond? We're going to make each one of you men here put up a $10,000 bond to guarantee that Tim's going to zip it. That's what happened in Thessalonica. That's what it tells us happened. We don't know how big the bond was, but if you give them a $500 bond, what's that? You have to make it enough that it hurts, right? You can do that. So that happens in Thessalonica. They go to Berea. The same thing happens to Berea. He goes down to Athens, and, and Paul has problems on Athens. And then he goes to Corinth, and he has problems in Corinth, and he gets freaked out, and he quits, and the Lord has to show up and say, Paul, quit being quiet. You're people out there. I need you to speak. He, get, he ends up in Ephesus, and what happens? They have the whole city come out, almost the whole city. And for two hours, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. And the believers don't want Paul to go down into the center because they think he's going to get killed. Well, the same thing had happened in, in uh, Corinth. It's just like Paul runs into opposition after opposition. You think the guy would say, we need to reinvent this message because it keeps getting knocked down. We keep getting kicked. But Paul doesn't do that. He just keeps on preaching that message. Peter and John kept on preaching that message. We don't share those parts with people very much because we want people to think that Christianity is cool and it's fun. Come become a come join and become a follower of Jesus, not even biblical language, and we're come and do this and we'll have fun. We'll pop popcorn and I don't know what else we'll do. We'll do karaoke at the Holsters on New Year's Eve, you know, something like that. We did that this year. Can Christians have fun? Yeah. But is fun what Christianity is about? Is Jesus Christ about us having a great time? Is it about exciting? Is it about good food? Is it about just, woo, we're kicking it fun? No, it's not. It's about believing in Jesus Christ and what he did. And when you go through the book of Acts, what you see is you see the gospel continuing to spread, continuing to spread, but you see as it does that opposition, 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 Opposition. Christianity has never been popular. Well, even during the ages when the Catholic Church was in control, that wasn't pop, that wasn't biblical Christianity. And you know what happened to people that preached the gospel? They put them to death. And then the reformers come along and they kind of, we kind of think that they're doing some stuff good, but you know what they did? They ended up turning against the people that were preaching the plain straight gospel too, because it didn't match what they what they thought. This has gone on through the millennia, the two millennia that the church has been around. So this section is just to remind us that what we're doing down here is not determined by culture and it's not determined by popularity. It's not done by going to the people in your community and saying, what are you looking for in church? What don't you want? What do you want? Oh, we're going to do church like that. You don't do it that way. You don't ask the world, how should we as Christians do God's will? You don't do it that way. We turn to the Word of God, and to the best of our ability, we try to discern in there. Are there different ways you can do church? There are Bible-teaching churches that do church in different ways. And as long as they're trying to line up with the Word of God as they understand it, I'm fine with that, because it doesn't give us details on exactly what a church service is supposed to look like. But if I'm trying to do church, or my ministry, or whatever I'm doing, trying to tailor it, to make it cool and popular with the world, I have abandoned the authority of God's word. Now, I think I would like to take one more week, so maybe you hope you don't stay home next week going, I'm tired, I don't want to hear another week of this. I hope you're not like that. I hope you're like, the word of God's good. I want to, we need to be reminded, this is our authority. This is our book. And I don't care if I write a book, that book is only authoritative to the degree that it communicates the word of God. But it's not an authority. This is the authority. I think Susan made this comment once uh, some time back when we were at Bible study. She goes, a lot of times people get together and they, they want to have a Bible study and we're going to use a book. We got a book and that's going to be our Bible study. But they read the book and they never look up the scriptures. <laughs> this is really the authority. If I've written anything that is helpful 
It is only the verses in there that are helpful. That's our authority. Just come back to that. I'm trying to use myself as an example. I'm not the authority. This is the authority. Father, we're thankful for the time that you've given us together, and we're thankful for your word. We Just help us not ever to uh, treat lightly what it is that we actually have your words, words that are, as, as Paul says, are still living and powerful today, that are active, that can actually work in our lives. We have your words to us. And when we read it, it's like we're listening to, to you speaking to Israel, your son speaking to Israel, you speaking through the apostles and through their pen to us. And we're thankful as we read those things that we're able to know what you've done what you're doing and what you will do. And it is our authority. And help us just to make that very very plain in our minds as we think about the things that you want us to do as individuals and the things that you want us to be doing as a church. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the attention of these dear people. And we just ask that the authority of your word would be something that would really resonate with us as we continue to, to do your will on a daily basis. And we thank you for it. Amen. Again, thank you all.